All right, this morning we get back into the Gospel of John. Turn in your Bibles with me to chapter 16. I'm going to read the last sentence of verse 4, because we left off at that point uh, back in November, and I'm going to read through verse 24 of chapter 16. Please listen as I read God's word. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, What is this thing he's telling us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child... No longer does she remember the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive, so that your joy may be made full. So read the words of the living God. Father, as we look at this text where the Lord Jesus talked about the coming of the Spirit, I ask that same Spirit would fill us right here, right now. 
that we would be encouraged that all of these things have come to pass, that our Lord Jesus is true and right. And Lord, for anyone in this room today who does not believe, would you convict them of their sin, show them the Savior, bring them to yourself, that they may join us in joy because of what you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard that amen. So in my, uh, in my role here in our district, in the Mid-America District of the Christian Missionary Alliance, one of the things that I have to do now and then is travel. I'll be going in February to uh, Omaha to, uh, to participate in the Licensing and Ordaining Committee where we uh, will interview uh, certain folks for ordination. One of those folks this year, is this spring, is going to be uh, Eric Smith over at the East Campus. So you can pray for him and uh, pray for me that I'll be nice to him. Looking forward to that. Uh, and every time I travel, I, uh, I'm gone for a few days, and when I come back, my children and my wife are very glad to see me. And the longer I'm gone, the, the gladder they are to see me. Now, some of you travel more than just a few days. Some of you have to go for a couple weeks at a time, that kind of thing. Um, and it's, it's always hard to leave, and it's, it's good to come back. But some of you have actually experienced something that I can't begin to comprehend, and that is going overseas uh, on a deployment for a year or so. I can't imagine what it's like to be on either end of that, to be the one going, but at least when you're the one going, you're going on a mission to what you signed up for. But imagine how hard it would be to be the, the one who is left, the, the wife is left behind, the children are left behind as, as their husband, dad leaves uh, for a year maybe or six, eight months, nine months and going into harm's way. Again, some of you have been there. Some of you have been there very recently. And what a rejoicing it is when the deployed spouse comes home and dad comes home or mom comes home. I, again, I, I, I've, seen, I've seen it here. I haven't, seen it for, I haven't experienced it firsthand, but I've seen enough to know it's just an amazing time when, when the, the, the one who's been away comes back. Now imagine that... Uh, that you're the husband, you go off to a place where there's uh, hostility and danger, and you come home after a year, and you're, you're with your family for a little while, and then you say, by the way, there's something I've been meaning to tell you, but hasn't been the right time, and now I'm going to tell you. I'm going away again, not for six months, not for a year, but I'm going away permanently. And, sweetheart, it's to your advantage that I do this. I mean, can you imagine? There's no way <laughs> the wife is ever going to say it's to my advantage that you leave me. No, that's, that's, not, that's not how this works. That's kind of what's going on here in, in, this, uh, in this setting where Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going away, and it's to your advantage. 
these men, these, these 11 men, the disciples who, remember, they're all up in the upper room, this, this uh, second story of this house, and, and Jesus is preparing them for his departure. And this is shocking for them. We talked about kind of a, a bomb dropped uh, when, he, when he said this. This is not only, well, so, so existentially for them, this, he's become a good friend. He, they've been with him for two or three years here, and they've, they've spent most of their time with him. He's become a good friend, and he's been teaching them things of God, and he's been doing amazing things, and, and they've built a very close friendship. But then you step back a level, and this is the long-awaited Messiah. This is the one that for hundreds and hundreds of years, the scripture has predicted that he would come. The king would come. We just got through the Christmas season, right? For unto us a child is born. Uh, these guys had heard the stories of, of the angel of the Lord announcing the birth of this child. Uh, this is the Messiah. This is the, the one who's going to sit on David's throne forever and ever and ever and ever. The entire Jewish nation had been waiting for centuries for this man to show up, this king. And here he is, and he has done all the things he needed to do to prove that he was the king. He took a few loaves and fishes and fed thousands. He walked across the top of the water. He cast out demons with just a word. He, he took a lame man, a man who had been unable to walk, and he, he healed him. Another man who had been blind from birth, and he healed him. And then the big one... He walked up to a tomb with a man who had been dead for four days. He says, hey, Lazarus, get up and walk. And Lazarus came back from the dead. So their hopes are fixed on this man as the long-awaited king and Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm leaving on a jet plane. And it's too your advantage. See, we know the end of the story, and so this isn't as shocking to us as it would have been to them. The suspense here is, is not quite as strong for us because we know how it ends. Uh, over the holidays, my family watched Lord of the Rings, the extended version. It's great. Wow, what a high. Every time we see that, it's a great movie. But, you know, it's not quite as great as the first time I read the book because I know what's going to happen. You know, Shelob, eh, oh, big deal. Still freaks my family out, but uh, you know what's going to happen at the end of this. So the suspense is not there, even though the story is great. We, we have the benefit of knowing how this all turns out. But these disciples didn't get it. All they know is this man in whom they had placed their hopes, individually and nationally, said, I'm leaving you, and it's for your good. Okay, Jesus. You had better have some serious benefits to your leaving to tell us it's better for us that you're not here. Well, what is it that's to their advantage that Jesus leaves? It's verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What you don't understand yet, disciples, is that 
If I don't leave, the Spirit of God cannot and will not come upon you. If I leave you, I will send him. And the only thing better than having the Son of God with you is to have the Spirit of God in you. And that's what he's going to do. Again, we know how this plays out. We know the story. They didn't understand. But the Spirit of God being poured out on all of God's people was a new covenant promise, not an old covenant promise. So for centuries, the children of Israel had a relationship with God. And that relationship was based on the law of Moses. That was the old covenant. And God said, basically, here are the terms. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will punish you. Those are the terms. That's the agreement. And so for centuries, the Jews disobeyed God, and God continued to punish them as he said he would. That was the nature of the covenant, the contract that God made with Israel. And, of course, it was a, it was a harsh and cruel uh, for them contract because they couldn't obey. But all along the way, God promised a new covenant that he would make. And in this new covenant, he said, I'm going to work on your inside. I'm going to work on your heart. I'm going to work on your will, on your mind, on your thinking. I'm going to transform you into someone who will please me. And I'm going to do that by placing my spirit within you. And on that day, he said, I will pour out my spirit on all of my people. When you read the Old Testament, you realize there's only a certain number of people that had God's spirit and only for a time. And so when a king was raised up, when a prophet was raised up, and that kind of thing, the spirit would come and, and, and enable them to please God, but most of the people didn't have the spirit. But God said in this new covenant I'm going to make with you, every single member of my covenant, that is every Christian, will have my spirit in him or her, and they will be able to please me. This is why we sing stronger. The Spirit of God in you makes you stronger than any temptation and any opposition. That Spirit could not come until Jesus fulfilled the old covenant and inaugurated the new one. So on the cross, he took upon himself all the, the curses of the old covenant for believing Jews and then he instigated the new covenant, which we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. With his body and his blood being shed, he said, this is now my body, my blood, the new covenant in my blood, so that now you're forgiven. And now that the new covenant has been instituted, God can pour out his spirit, which is what happened on the day of Pentecost. That day when the apostles, these same men, had in Jerusalem gathered all the, the Jewish people together, and suddenly the sound like a rushing wind comes, and everyone ran out to see what it was, and these 11 men stood up, well, they had added a 12th by then, right? Stood up in front of all these Jews, and they started preaching the mighty deeds of God in all these different languages that none of them had studied. And thousands of the Jews understood right then and there God was at work, and they put their faith in Jesus and were saved, which was proof of the gospel. These men didn't understand that, but Jesus is saying, I, I, I can't send the Spirit, and he won't come upon you unless I first go away. It's better for you 
that I leave and send the Spirit. This is, this is old news to us. But don't let the old, the familiarity of it diminish its importance. The Spirit of God indwells you. The two great promises of the new covenant. Number one, forgiveness of sin. Number two, the Spirit of God transforming you from the inside out. That's true of us, and for 2,000 years, the church has been experiencing the benefit, the advantage of God's Spirit. Unbelievers don't have the Spirit of God. I think I've mentioned this before. Do you realize how many billions of dollars people spend every year on self-help books and conferences and seminars and therapies? There's a new technique that comes out every month almost. If you'll just do this, you can quit that addiction. You can get better. You can stop doing those things that are destroying you. And it doesn't work. There aren't enough step step programs in the world to truly transform people forever. Because the problem is on the inside. And it's not just chemical and biological, it's spiritual. And unbelievers don't have the power to overcome the bad habits, the addictions, the things that are destroying them. We do. Because the Spirit of God indwells us and He is changing us and transforming us. Jesus died, He rose to heaven, and then He sent the Spirit. And that Spirit was poured out on you if you're a believer, and you can overcome. Everyone in this room who's a believer can overcome. All addictions, all temptations, all struggles, we can do it because He's come. So Jesus gives some more information. He gives us three things the Spirit is going to do when he comes. Again, for us, this is old news, but for them, it was a a preview of what's to come. First thing he says, verse 8, when he, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is an interesting phrase, and I'm guessing you have an opinion on what that means, and I'm going to change your opinion. Because I changed my opinion as I was studying this in the last few weeks. So there's an ambiguity in the English here, the word convict. If I were to come in here next Sunday and say to you, I was convicted last week, what would I mean by that? Well, I mean one of two things, right? I could mean I was convicted of a crime. Then the elders would say, can we see you after the service, please? All right. Or could say, I was convicted in the, in, in the sense of I was convinced that something I was doing was wrong. In both cases, I did something wrong. But in the first case, I may not own up to it, but somebody else determined that I was wrong. Right? The, the law, I'm convicted. In the, in the second place, I'm actually convinced that was wrong and I don't want to do it anymore and I'm sorry for it, that kind of thing. That's how we use the word convict. Sometimes it's this external declaration and sometimes it's an internal change. So the question is, what does Jesus mean here when he says, when the Spirit comes, when the Helper comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment? If you just take that verse, you think he probably means this one over here. 
When the Spirit comes, he's going to go out into the world, and he's going to convince them that they're sinners and that, that Jesus is righteous and, and that the, 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 the ruler of the world is judged, as he goes on to say. That may be what he means, and we know that is true. The Spirit does do that. But in the context of this whole discussion, I don't think that's what Jesus means. There's nothing good or hopeful about the world in this upper room discourse. There is earlier in John. There is later in John. Jesus came to save the world. He's giving his life for the world, for the whole world. But most recently, if you remember back to November, and I know most of you do, but uh, just for the three of you that don't remember what we talked about in, in November, let me just recap. He has just said to these men, the world hates me, Jesus, And because you're my disciples, the world will hate you also. And if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And by the way, when I leave, they're going to take you into their synagogues and they're going to destroy you. Some of of you they're going to kill. Cheer up. I'm leaving you. (laughs) All right? It's good news. Uh, He's preparing them for the reality of what's coming for them. It's going to cost them to remain faithful to Jesus. And so here when he says what the Spirit's going to do for the world, I, I don't think he's changing now saying it's good for the world. He's actually saying something else. He's saying the world is going to come and he's, the, the Spirit's rather is going to come and he's going to basically prove the world wrong in their evaluation of me, Jesus. So he's going to convict, he's going to prove guilty or wrong concerning sin, The world doesn't believe in me. And the world that he's talking about there is primarily the Jews, the Jews who are going to persecute him and the the other disciples. That world of Jewish people, he's going to, the Spirit's going to prove them wrong because they don't believe in me. They don't believe that I'm from the Father. They don't believe that I'm the Messiah. They don't believe that I'm the, the, the King and the Savior, but they're wrong. And the Spirit is going to prove them wrong by raising me from the dead. And he says he's going to convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. That convicting them of righteousness is a vindication, declaring Jesus right and the Jews wrong. How do we know that Jesus is right and the Jews are wrong? Because he's going to the Father and you don't see him anymore. Well, that's, that's no big trick. Anybody can do that. I'm going to die and nobody can see me. See, proves my point. No, but if the Spirit comes, that proves that Jesus went not just to the grave, but he actually went to the Father. As the Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, as it will be, that vindicates the claim of righteousness that Jesus made against the world. And the third one, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Earlier in this upper room discourse, Jesus said the ruler of the world is coming, but he's got nothing on me. See, Satan thought he's winning the big one right here at the cross. Satan is convinced. If I can get them to kill the Son of God, the Messiah, I win and the world is mine. And Jesus says, yeah, he thinks he's going to win, and he wins a small victory, but he loses the war because that death is how I'm going to redeem my people, and I will rise again, and then I will destroy him when I'm raised to power. 
the ruler of this world is judged. How do we know? Jesus sent his spirit. Everything that Jesus did is contingent on two things, the resurrection and the spirit coming. If either of those things don't come, then Jesus is a liar. But the truth is Jesus died, then he rose to life, and he sent his spirit, proving the world is wrong and he is right. The, the, the New Testament goes on and use, uses this terminology later on. Let me read one verse from 1 Timothy. Um, actually, I'm going to read a couple of verses to set the context. So Paul writes this to Timothy. I'm writing these things to you, Timothy, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And then he says this, by common confession. So this apparently was a confession that churches were pronouncing in their gatherings all over the place. Just you know, a short while after Jesus died and rose again, the church started saying this together. And here's the common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness, he, speaking of Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh and was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. Included in this, this uh, repeated refrain, maybe a song that they sang or a responsive reading kind of thing they did or a, a phrase, a, a paragraph they memorized as the church. When the church came together, they would say this, and part of it was, he was vindicated by the Spirit. The fact that Jesus sent the Spirit, the fact that the Spirit came upon the church is proof that the world was wrong. Jesus was right. So here we are 2,000 years later. If the Spirit of God indwells people and He's changing you and He's filling you with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, did I get them all? Yes. If the Spirit of God is doing that, it is proof positive Jesus is who he claimed to be. Because if we were not being transformed by his Spirit, Jesus was a liar. But we are being transformed by his Spirit. If you've been a Christian for a year, you're a better person than you were a year ago. If you've been a Christian for 20 years, you are a more righteous person than you were 20 years ago. Don't let the enemy convince you otherwise. He loves to accuse. He loves to discourage. He loves to get you to think, oh, I'm just a miserable sinner. I'm no better than I was when I came to Jesus except I'm saved. If that's true, you're not a Christian. He does not leave any of us in the same state that he found us. He is at work, and it's proof that Jesus rose from the dead. To your advantage, when he comes, he will prove, convict the world that it was wrong and Jesus is right. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose it to you what is to come. So Jesus had a lot of information to give these men. He'd been teaching them for three years, and he had more to say, but right now they're in such a stupor and a shock that he's going to leave, and that that's a good thing, that they're not really listening. You've been there, I'm sure. So Jesus says, it's okay, you don't have to remember every, everything that I say to you, because when the Spirit of God comes, he will remind you of what I said, he will lead you into truth and teach you. And by God's grace, they wrote it down. Everything the Spirit of God taught the disciples, we have. They wrote it down. This is why we need to study the New Testament scriptures. We need to read the epistles. We need to read the gospels. We need to read Hebrews. Even the book of Revelation, you need to read it. Because they wrote it down. All of the Spirit revealed to them. And the Spirit continues to illuminate the word to us so that we can know what it means and be transformed by it. He didn't leave it to chance. I mean, I, just last fall, I went in that room back there and I taught 70 or 80 of you. And the next week you'd come in and I'd say, okay, what did I teach you last week? Crickets. I need the Holy Spirit to fill your mind with truth because I'm not capable of doing anything that's going to be lasting for you. But the Holy Spirit is, and he wrote it down. Study the scriptures so that you may know what Jesus expects of you. The other thing he's going to do when he comes, he says, verse 14, he will glorify me. For he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All the Father has are mine, Jesus says. Therefore I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The Spirit does not come to glorify the Spirit. Christians get this mixed up sometimes. We get so caught up in what the Bible says the Spirit is doing that we get really excited about the Spirit and the, and the gifts of the Spirit and the miracles of the Spirit and all of that. And we forget the Spirit did not come and say, hey, everybody, look at me. You know, the Old Testament was all about the Father, and then for a few years it was all about Jesus, but now it's all about me, the Spirit. That's not what he does. All three persons of the Trinity are constantly pointing to Jesus. God the Father said, this is my Son, worship him. The Spirit shows up and said, hey, y'all, if you're from Texas, all y'all, come here and glorify the Son of God. Because that's why you were made, to worship the Son of God. So the Spirit is constantly saying, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. You can't do it on your own, so I'm going to open your eyes so you'll look at Jesus. And you're tempted to wander off and do your own thing, so I've come to give you power and bring you back to Jesus and keep focusing you on Jesus because it's all about Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah King. And so the Spirit comes to glorify, not himself, certainly not us, but he comes to glorify Jesus. That's what Jesus said. He's here to glorify me. So how are we going to glorify Jesus? We walk in his Spirit. We read his word. 
and let the Spirit lead us there. And then we get this whole business about a little while, you'll see me, a little while you won't. And they're like, what does he mean a little while? And Jesus says, do you not know what I mean by a little while? It's kind of a fascinating little dialogue here. Again, we have the full story, but what's going on is Jesus is going to die, and that's what he means by you'll have grief. Verse 20, you'll weep and lament. The world is going to rejoice. The the Jews are going to rejoice when they kill me, and you're going to be distraught. But then I'm going to come back to life, and you're going to, woohoo! And then I'm going to go away again, right? This is what's in their future. Think about it. Think about the emotional roller coaster they're about to be on. They're going to watch Jesus led away and crucified on a cross, and they're going to be sad. And then three days later, they're going to see him alive, and they're going to be happy. And then a couple weeks after that or so, they're going to be standing with him on a mount on a side of a hill, and then he's just going to fly up under the sky and never come back. Uh, we were so excited, and then we were so sad, and then we were so excited again, and I just left. And remember the angels show up while they're staring into the sky? And the angels ask them kind of a dumb question. What are you guys staring at? Did you see that? People don't just start floating up into the air. That's what we're staring at. Jesus just went up and up and up and he's gone. The disciples said, well, what are you doing here? He told you it's going to happen. Get back to Jerusalem and wait for him. And they went back. Now what? Until what happened? What? Until the Spirit came on Pentecost and launched the church into the world. But they don't know this is all coming yet. And so Jesus is preparing them, look, you're going to grieve, then you're going to rejoice, then you're going to grieve, and then you're going to rejoice. Verse 27, just like when a mother gives birth. This is another one of those things I can only describe from an outsider's point of view. I know what it's like to watch my wife writhe in pain. Oh, so many things I want to say that I shouldn't. It'll get me in trouble. But some of you women, many of you women in this room know exactly what Jesus is talking about. And some of you are about to know what this is talking about in a few months. It gets harder and harder and harder. Once you get past the morning sickness, then maybe you have a few good months in the middle and then just everything starts hurting. The back hurts, the front hurts, the top hurts, the bottom hurts, everything hurts. And that's not even the labor pain. Man, our technology today is something. I remember watching the contraction just before Krista felt it. And I would go, like, oh, this is going to be a big one. She's like, oh, I don't want to see that. <laughs> but she did it again and again. Some of you ladies have done it again and again and again and again. Because after the pain, the joy is so wonderful, you sort of forgot how much it hurt. That's what Jesus is describing. You are going to experience pain when I die. But then when you see me alive, you're going to be filled with such joy you don't remember the grief and the sorrow. 
and they will never be able to take your joy away. Well, we weren't there. We didn't have to go through the pain and suffering of seeing him crucified. We didn't have the existential experience these disciples did of mourning over the loss of Jesus. But he is alive. And we got to skip the grief and the pain and go straight to the joy. He's alive. He's reigning. We have his spirit. And he says to them, in that day you will not question me about anything. Once you see me alive, once the spirit has come, you won't have to ask me questions. In fact, truly I say to you, you'll ask the Father for anything in my name and he'll give it to you. You haven't asked in my name to this point, but when that happens, you will ask in my name and he will give you whatever you ask so that your joy may be made full. We talked about this before. This is not a card blot, it's not a blank check, just go ask God for anything you want to. It's not that. It's anything in his name means what brings glory to him. This is what God is doing in the world. He's bringing glory to Jesus. So we are to ask the Father for the things that will bring glory to Jesus and trust the Father is going to answer those prayers. And I challenged you earlier when we got to this, because Jesus said this earlier, that we need to ask bigger prayers. Remember we talked about this, talked about this the Christmas season. There will be no end to the increase of his kingdom and his peace. He is transforming the world. Jesus is doing that. He is building his kingdom. There are more Christians today than there were when Jesus said this. By millions, if not billions. Colorado Springs, despite what the rest of the world thinks because of so many ministries based here, this is not the Christian Mecca. We shouldn't call that anyway. The New Jerusalem. It's not quite yet the New Jerusalem. We need to fill this city with disciples. We need to ask Jesus big things for the expansion of his kingdom here in Colorado Springs. And he says, ask and you shall receive. We want to see frack grow and every good church in Colorado Springs grow. We need to ask big things of the one who can actually bring it about. Let's do that. And notice what he says at the end of that, verse 24, so that your joy may be made full. Yes, we have a lot of joy in our families, our own children being born, a lot of celebrations and great things. But is there anything more joyful than seeing unbelievers come to faith in Jesus? Because we know those things are eternal. We know that's what Jesus came to do, was to build his kingdom. Our joy is full as we preach the gospel and see his kingdom and his peace expanded. I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions. I think they're mostly emotionally based. But it's New Year. So, I want to challenge you. There are people in this room who probably didn't talk to a single person in 2019 about Jesus. Don't let that be said of you this time next year. Make it a point to do your part to see the kingdom of God expand. Just one, just start with one. Determine, I'm going to talk to one unbeliever about the gospel of Jesus Christ and ask the Father to give you that opportunity and see what it does to your joy. You will not regret it. I promise you, you will not regret it. And people 
are not going to spit in your face and run away from you. So this, this guy was talking about during uh, communion, uh, uh, he, he and his wife were referred to me for some marriage counseling. They're not Christians, neither one of them. Guess what I did as I'm talking about marriage? We're getting to the gospel. It's an easy one. Hey, marriage is a picture of Jesus, Jesus in the church. <laughs> Here's what Jesus did for his bride. That's how you need to treat your bride. And they're receptive. They want to talk more. And it was a joyful experience. And I'm praying for them. And you need to do it too. It's January 6th. 5th? Ish. <laughs> it's January 5th. Eh. 2020 AD. What does AD mean? Say it. What does Anno Domini mean? The year of our Lord Jesus Christ. The entire Western world, I know I said this, I'm, I'm going to say this until you start mocking me, and then I'll know you're getting it. The entire Western world gathered last week to count down the hours and minutes and seconds to holler and hoop and blow those dumb little whoo until the new year of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most of them don't have a clue what they're counting, but you do. That's what we're counting. The entire Western world, isn't that just like God? All of these people who are clueless about what they're doing, he's causing them to announce the new year of the reign of Jesus Christ? I think that's, that's wonderful irony. We must live the year 2020 not as the year of us as individuals, not as the year of us as a nation. It's a new year of the reign and the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He is risen. Let me say that again. He is risen. And he reigns from heaven today. And he's building his kingdom. And he has sent his spirit. And we rejoice. And we have work to do, folks. We have work to do. This is not a you get saved, wait till he comes back, and then just survive in between. No, 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 no. Jesus is not up there saying, hey, Father, when are you going to send me back? In the meantime, I'm just going to sit over and twiddle my thumbs, watch the Patriots lose. Jesus is sovereign over everything, including that. And he's at work building his kingdom. It's his new year of reigning. We must be about the business of bringing people into the kingdom and edifying them as they grow in Christ. And expanding his kingdom for his glory and we will experience his joy. And we can do all of this because his spirit has come. We're going to sing about the risen Lord as though it's Easter because every day is Easter. 
And then we're going to go out and we're going to change the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you did what you said you would do. You sent the Spirit. Lord Jesus, you ascended to the Father's right hand. You sent the Spirit. We are living proof, and for two millennia now, the Spirit has been at work. Would you increase your work in the people in this room? Change us even more from the inside out. We are putting to death the deeds of the body by your Spirit. May that be true of every one of us every day. And would you build the kingdom? Would you use us in 2020 to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ and see unbelievers repent of their sin and have eternal life, that our joy may be full as we see you at work. Father, I say this again, for anyone in this room today, right now, or anyone listening online who does not believe, would you grab their hearts? They already know they are guilty before you. Would you give them the willingness to admit their guilt, to call upon you for salvation, for forgiveness. Fill them with your spirit and add them to our army that is taking the kingdom of darkness by storm. Increase our joy as we worship and glorify Jesus Christ. Amen.